Chapter 40 of Will Warburton. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jennifer Painter. Will Warburton by George Gissing. Chapter 40. With curiosity, which had in it a touch of amusement, Will was waiting to hear from Norbert Franks. He waited for nearly a month, and was beginning to feel rather hurt at his friend's neglect, perhaps a little uneasy on another score, when there arrived an Italian postcard, stamped Venice. "'We have been tempted as far as this,' ran the hurried scrawl. "'Must be home in ten days. She'll be delighted to see you again.' Warburton puckered his brows, and wondered whether a previous letter or card had failed to reach him. But probably not. At the end of September, Franks wrote from his London address, briefly but cordially, with an invitation to luncheon on the next day, which was Sunday. And Warburton went. He was nervous as he knocked at the door. He was rather more nervous as he walked into the studio. Norbert advanced to him with a shout of welcome, and from a chair in the background rose Mrs. Franks. Perceptibly changed, both of them. The artist's look was not quite so ingenuous as formerly. His speech, resolute in friendliness, had not quite the familiar note. Rosamond, already more mature of aspect, smiled somewhat too persistently, seemed rather too bent on showing herself unembarrassed. They plunged into talk of Tyrol, of the Dolomites, of Venice, and, so talking, passed into the dining-room, "'Queer little house this, isn't it?' said Mrs. Franks, as she sat down to table. "'Everything is sacrificed to the studio. There's no room to turn anywhere else. We must look at once for more comfortable quarters.' "'It's only meant for a man living alone,' said the artist, with a laugh. Franks laughed frequently, whether what he said was amusing or not. "'Yes, we must find something roomier.' "'A score of sitters waiting for you, I suppose?' said Warburton. "'Oh, several. One of them such an awful fizz that I'm afraid of her. If I make her presentable, it will be my greatest feat yet. But the labourer is worthy of his hire, you know, and this bit of beauty-making will have its price.' "'You know how to interpret that, Mr. Warburton,' said Rosamond, with a discreetly confidential smile. Norbert asks very much less than any other portrait painter of his reputation would. "'He'll grow out of that bad habit,' Will replied. His note was one of joviality, almost of bluffness. "'I'm not sure that I wish him to,' said the painter's wife, her eyes straying as if in a sudden dreaminess. "'It's a distinction nowadays not to care for money. Norbert jokes about making an ugly woman beautiful.' she went on earnestly, but what he will really do is to discover the very best aspect of the face, and so make something much more than an ordinary likeness. Franks fidgeted, his head bent over his plate. "'That's the work of the great artist!' exclaimed Warburton, boldly flattering. "'Humbug!' growled Franks, but at once he laughed and glanced nervously at his wife. Though this was Rosamond's only direct utterance on the subject, 
Warburton discovered from the course of the conversation that she wished to be known as her husband's fervent admirer, that she took him with the utmost seriousness, and was resolved that everybody else should do so. The great artist phrase gave her genuine pleasure. She rewarded Will with the kindest look of her beautiful eyes, and from that moment appeared to experience a relief, so that her talk flowed more naturally. Luncheon over, they returned to the studio, where the men lit their pipes, while Rosamond, at her husband's entreaty, exhibited the sketches she had brought home. "'Why didn't you let me hear from you?' asked Warburton. "'I got nothing but that flimsy postcard from Venice.' "'Why, I was always meaning to write,' answered the artist. "'I know it was too bad, but time goes so quickly. "'With you, no doubt. "'But if you stood behind a counter all day—' "'Will saw the listeners exchange a startled glance, "'followed by an artificial smile. "'There was an instant's dead silence. "'Behind a counter?' "'Fell from Norbert, as if he failed to understand. "'The counter! My counter!' shouted Will blusterously. "'You know very well what I mean. "'Your wife has told you all about it.' "'Rosamond flushed and could not raise her eyes. "'We didn't know,' said Franks, with his nervous little laugh, "'whether you cared uh, to talk about it. "'I'll talk about it with anyone you like. "'So you do know. "'That's all right. "'I still owe my apology to Mrs. Franks "'for having given her such a shock. "'The disclosure was really too sudden.' "'It is I who should beg you to forgive me, Mr. Warburton,' replied Rosamond, in her sweetest accents. "'I behaved in a very silly way, but my friend Bertha Cross treated me as I deserved. She declared that she was ashamed of me. But do not, pray do not, think me worse than I was. I ran away, really, because I felt I had surprised a secret. I was embarrassed. I lost my head.' "'I'm sure you don't think me capable of really mean feelings.' "'But, old man,' put in the artist, in a half-pained voice, "'what the deuce does it all mean? Tell us the whole story, do.' Will told it, jestingly, effectively. "'I was quite sure,' sounded at the close, in Rosamond's voice of tender sympathy, "'that you had some noble motive. I said so at once to Bertha.' "'I suppose,' said Will, "'Miss Cross will never dare to enter the shop again.' "'She doesn't come?' "'Never since,' he answered laughingly. "'Her mother has been once or twice, "'and seems to regard me with a very suspicious eye. "'Mrs. Cross was told, no doubt?' "'But I really can't say,' replied Rosamond, averting her eyes. "'But doesn't it do one good to hear such a story, Norbert?' "'She added impulsively. "'Yes, that's pluck.' replied her husband, with the old spontaneity, in his eyes the old honest look, which hitherto had somehow been a little obscured. I know very well that I couldn't have done it. Warburton had not looked at Rosamond since her explanation and apology. He was afraid of meeting her eyes, afraid as a generous man who shrinks from inflicting humiliation. For was it conceivable that Rosamond could support his gaze without feeling humiliated? Remembering what had preceded that discovery at the shop, bearing in mind what had followed upon it, he reflected with astonishment on the terms of her self-reproach. It sounded so genuine. To the ears of her husband, 
it must have been purest, womanliest sincerity. As though she could read his thoughts, Rosamond addressed him again in the most naturally playful tone. "'And you have been in the Basque country since we saw you. I'm so glad you really took your holiday there at last. You often used to speak of doing so. And you met my sister. Winifred wrote to me all about it. The Coppingers were delighted to see you. Don't you think the nice people? Didn't poor Mrs. Coppinger seem any better? In spite of himself, Will encountered her look, met the beautiful eyes, felt their smile envelop him. Never till now had he known the passive strength of woman, that characteristic which at times makes her a force of nature rather than an individual being. Amazed, abashed, he let his head fall, and mumbled something about Mrs. Coppinger's state of health. He did not stay much longer. When he took his leave, it would have seemed natural if Franks had come out to walk a little way with him, but his friend bore him company only to the door. "'Let us see you as often as possible, old man. I hope you'll often come and lunch on Sunday. Nothing could please us better.' Franks' hand grip was very cordial. The look and tone were affectionate. But Will said to himself that the old intimacy was at an end. It must now give place to mere acquaintanceship. He suspected that Franks was afraid to come out and walk with him, afraid that it might not please his wife. That Rosamond was to rule, very sweetly of course, but unmistakably, no one could doubt who saw the two together for five minutes. It would be, in all likelihood, a happy subjugation, for Norbert was of anything but a rebellious temper. His bonds would be of silk. The rewards of his docility would be such as many a self-assertive man might envy. But when Warburton tried to imagine himself in such a position, a choked laugh of humorous disdain heaved his chest. He wandered homewards in a dream. He relived those moments on the embankment at Chelsea, when his common sense, his reason, his true emotions, were defeated by an impulse now scarcely intelligible. He saw himself shot across Europe, like a parcel dispatched by express, and all that fury and rush meaningless as buffoonery at a pantomime. Yet this was how the vast majority of men fell in love, if ever they did so at all. This was the prelude to marriages innumerable, marriages destined to be dull as ditch-water or sour as verjuice. In love, forsooth! Rosamond, at all events, knew the value of that, and had saved him from his own infatuation. He owed her a lifelong gratitude. That evening he re-read a long letter from Jane, which had reached him yesterday. His sister gave him a full description of the new home in Suffolk, and told of the arrangement she had made with Miss Winter, whereby, in a twelve-month, she would be able to begin earning a little money, and if all went well, before long, would become self-supporting. Could he not run down to see them? Their mother had borne the removal remarkably well, and seemed, indeed, to have a new vigour. Possibly the air might suit her better than at the Hawes. Will mused over this, but had no mind to make the journey just yet. It would be a pain to him to see his mother in that new place. 
it would shame him to see his sister at work, and to think that all this change was on his account. So he wrote to mother and sister, with more of expressed tenderness than usual, begging them to let him put off his visit yet a few weeks. Presently they would be more settled. But of one thing let them be sure. His daily work was no burden whatever to him, and he hardly knew whether he would care to change it for what was called the greater respectability of labour in an office. His health was good, his spirits could only be disturbed by ill news from those he loved. He promised that at all events he would spend Christmas with them. September went by. One of the Sundays was made memorable by a visit to Ashted. Will had requested Franks to relate in that quarter the story of Mr. Jollyman, and immediately after hearing it, Ralph Pomfret wrote a warm-hearted letter which made the recipient in Fulham chuckle with contentment. At Ashted he enjoyed himself in the old way, gladdened by the pleasure with which his friends talked of Rosamond's marriage. Mrs. Pomfret took an opportunity of speaking to him apart, a bright smile on her good face. Of course, we know who did much, if not everything, to bring it about. Rosamond came and told me how beautifully you had pleaded Norbert's cause, and Norbert confided to my husband that, but for you, he would most likely have married a girl he really didn't care about at all. I doubt whether a mere man ever did such a thing so discreetly and successfully before. In October, Will began to waver in his resolve not to go down into Suffolk before Christmas. There came a letter from his mother which deeply moved him. She spoke of old things as well as new, and declared that in her husband and in her children no woman had ever known truer happiness. This was at the middle of the week. Will all but made up his mind to take an early train on the following Sunday. On Friday, he wrote to Jane telling her to expect him, and, as he walked home from the shop that evening, he felt glad that he had overcome the feelings which threatened to make this first visit something of a trial to his self-respect. "'There's a telegram waiting for you, sir,' said Mrs. Wick as he entered. The telegram contained four words. "'Mother ill, please come.'" End of chapter 40